All right. Uh, the readings from Song of Songs, chapter 8, and that's on page 516 if you're using one of the church Bibles. So Song of Songs, chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Oh, I wish you were my brother who nursed at my mother's breasts. Then I could kiss you no matter who was watching, and no one would criticize me. I would bring you to my childhood home, and there you would teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, my sweet pomegranate wine. Your left arm would be under my head, and your right arm would embrace me. Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is right. Who is this sweeping in from the desert, leaning on her lover? I'm sorry, that was the young women of Jerusalem. The next bit is a young woman. I aroused you under the apple tree, where your mother gave gave you birth, where in great pain she delivered you. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. The young woman's brothers. We have a little sister too young to have breasts. What will we do for our sister if someone asks to marry her? If she is a virgin, like a wall, we will protect her with, with a silver tower. But if she is promiscuous, like a swinging door, we will block her door with a cedar bar. Young woman. I was a virgin, like a wall. Now my breasts are like towers. When my lover looks at me, he is delighted with, with what he sees. Solomon has a vineyard at Baal Hamon, which he leases out to tenant farmers. Each of them pays a thousand pieces of silver for half harvesting its fruit. But my vineyard is mine to give, and Solomon need not pay a thousand pieces of silver. But I will give two hundred pieces to those who care for its vines. Young man, O oh my darling, lingering in the gardens, your companions are fortunate to hear your voice. Let me hear it too. Young woman, come away, my love. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Let me pray. Our loving Father, thank you for your word and thank you that in your word you teach us things that are important to every aspect of life. And we pray now as we look at your word from Song of Songs that you would teach us about love and sex and marriage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love and marriage, love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. This I tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. Love and marriage, love and marriage, it's an institute you can't disparage. Ask the local gentry and they will tell it's elementary. Well, that's what Frank Sinatra sang back in 1955. Not sure if you can remember it or not. Uh, but, But back in those days, it seems that marriage was an institute that you can't disparage and it was a time when the local gentry did consider it elementary. But times have certainly changed. Uh, In the 64 years since that song was released, 
love and marriage are often separated. Back when I was born, there were nearly 10 marriages each year for each 1,000 people in our population. So out of 1,000 people in the population, in 1970, there were 10 marriages. 10 years ago, that number dropped to 5.5. And then, 10 years since then, it's dropped further to 4.6 marriages per 1,000 people. And that's quite a big decline, isn't it, in my lifetime? Interestingly, it seems that the rate of divorce in the last 10 years has stabilised with only two divorces per 1,000 people, which is down from nearly 3% 20 years ago. In some ways, marriage appears less important than it once was, and it certainly is less religious. Over, uh, overall, I think we could say that marriage is less valued than it was before. Marriage is less valued. Almost four out of five marriages in Australia are performed by civil celebrants. Although I'm actually surprised it's not higher, given the lack of interest in weddings here in Jamboree and in our region that's reported to me by the local ministers. You might think that this lack of interest in marriage shows a greater interest in de facto relationships then, but I read that given there were only 14,000 relationships registered in 2017, marriage is still six times more popular than de facto's. Uh, in her opinion piece in the Sun-Herald, Caitlin Fitzsimmons notes that we, quote, are a secular society, but we still believe in marriage. And she concludes with this comment. For all the debate about religious freedom and the divide between conservative and progressive churches over same-sex marriage, for the vast majority of Australians, it's simply irrelevant. Full stop. And so they say of marriage. So if marriage is becoming less and less common and less and less relevant, the question is this. Why is it that people bother getting married at all? And I think it's because people seek the security of commitment. They seek the security of commitment. Now, some people think you don't need to be married to be committed. That's true. But there still is something about putting a ring on a finger that leads people to want to walk down the aisle and say, I do. But why would we do something that would lock us into a contract when it's not needed? See, we don't stay committed to one employer for life anymore, and we do all we can to avoid being locked into a mobile phone contract, so why marriage? Well, it seems that there's something inherently good about a strong marriage. It, it seems that people like the idea of stability for their children and the idea of having a companion who remains loyal throughout life. Is this the reason we should get married? Is commitment all it's worked up to be? Well, God thinks it is. And over this past month, we've been looking at a peculiar book of the Bible called The Song of Songs. It's peculiar because it's a raunchy love poem in the Bible. And we've peered into the intimate conversation of a particular couple and in the process have seen their excitement leading up to their wedding day. We've seen their fears of relationships, haven't we? And we've heard their generous praise for one another. Today we're looking at their wedding day and the excitement 
and the enjoyment that this wedding day brings. And we're also going to look at their relationship after the day, a time when the peace of union is actually even better than sex. Well, we pick this up at chapter 7. The woman's dream in chapters 3 to 6 is now finished. We've looked at that over the last two weeks. Now we return to reality. And as we pick up this time in the whole song, we see that she's still not married, but her wedding day is fast approaching. And the first section we'll look at is from chapter 7, verse 1, through to chapter 8, verse 4. And it shows us the desire for commitment. Chapter 7 begins with a breathtaking description of the woman from feet to head. Have a look at chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Oh, how beautiful are your sandaled feet, O queenly maiden! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a skilled craftsman. Your navel is perfectly formed like a goblet filled with mixed wine. Between your thighs lies a mound of wheat bordered with lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is as beautiful as an ivory towel. Your eyes are like the sparkling pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Ravim. Your nose is as fine as the Tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus. Your head is as majestic as Mount Carmel. And the sheen of your hair radiates royalty. The king is held captive by its tresses. Wow. <laughs> what a way to describe her. This fiancé, he richly describes her body. Every little bit in colourful words. Begins with her feet and then works his way up. And he uses extravagant words to describe the beauty that he sees in his bride-to-be. And then he sums up his feelings. In verse 6 he says, Oh, how beautiful you are! How pleasing, my love! How full of delights! Again, we have extravagant words of praise. But it doesn't end with his words, because he now expresses his desire to make love to her. Verses 7 to 9. You are slender like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like grape clusters, and the fragrance of your breath like apples. May your kisses be as exciting as the best wine. Yes, wine that goes down smoothly for my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. Tim, aren't you pleased that you just got chapter 8? <laughs> then the woman... What? Hey, turn this air conditioning up. <laughs> then the woman tells the man that she shares his desire for sex. Verses 10 to 13. I am my lover's and he claims me as his own. Come, my love, let us go out to the fields and spend the night among the wildflowers... Let us get up early and go to the vineyards to see if the grapevines have budded, if the blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. There the mandrakes give off their fragrance, and the finest fruits are at our door. New delights as well as old, which I have saved for you, my lover. They desire to make love. 
and they express their desire for sexual union. But they're not married yet. I'm getting very close. Not married yet. Uh, there's no indication here that they've actually had sex yet, but you can see that there is a point where they are frustrated because they long for this, but yet they are not yet married. And so the woman, in fact, has a lament that begins in chapter 8, verse 1, where she wishes they were married so they didn't have to hide their love from the public. She says, oh, I wish you were my brother who nursed at my mother's breasts, because then I could kiss you and no matter who was watching and no one would criticise me. I'd bring you to my childhood home and there you would teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink my sweet pomegranate wine. Your left arm would be under my head and your right arm would embrace me. She wants to show public affection. She longs to show this public affection. And almost there's in this disappointment that they've got to wait for marriage, but she knows that they must. And so she dreams of the time when they will finally tie the knot. And I wonder if you've ever felt something like that where you found it difficult to wait for something. Uh, maybe in this exact situation. Maybe you're not yet married and would like to be married and you have these sorts of feelings. If you have had these feelings, you are completely normal because it is hard to be in a deep relationship with someone and not act like you're married, both emotionally and physically. And I think one of the things that makes it even harder for us is our trend today to marry so late in life. To get married before 25 or even 30 seems young. I'm pleased in our church we uh, don't follow that trend, as I'm sure some of our younger people are as well. But as we all know, our bodies reach sexual maturity much earlier than 25 or 30. It'd be much easier to control our desires if we got married at 14 or 15, wouldn't it? But we don't do that because of the law. But back then, there was a time when you did get married much younger. And in fact, it's worth thinking, isn't it, that, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was probably only a young teenager at the time when she, can, when she um, became pregnant with our Lord. You see, if the norm is to marry at twice that age of maturity... And so we struggle with desires. But we do struggle. Why? Because we believe that sexual morality is beautiful. We believe that sexual morality is beautiful, as we saw in chapter 4. Sex as God designed it is only for within marriage. The New Testament letter to the Hebrews spells this out. Chapter 13, verse 4 says, Give honour to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. See, God wants us to be pure so we can enjoy sex in the best way possible. But he also demands this because he wants us to live lives that obey him. See, when we disobey him when it comes to sex, we wreck the good thing he has made. And if we didn't know better, we'd think that God was just some sort of spoil sport. You know, we think that he just wants to keep sex away from pubescent teenagers so he can deprive them of some joy. But that's not the case. God knows that sex is a beautiful thing that has disastrous consequences when it's not used properly. We saw some of that pain last week, didn't we? When we witnessed the separation and the loneliness and the pain that can come from love. And so God wants us to enjoy it within the security of commitment. And so we should enjoy sex within the commitment 
of marriage, within the commitment of marriage. And his commitment is one that can only occur in the bonds of marriage. So we hear this important refrain for a third time in this song. We've heard it a few times, haven't we? It says, Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is right. Don't awaken love till the time's right. And until you're married to your spouse, the time to fully awaken sexual love is not right. And so the wise advice in this piece of literature, this wisdom literature, is that we should wait until the right time. We should wait until the right time. Well, in the next section of the poem, it seems that the big day has come and gone. We don't actually have the wedding, but we sort of see the before and now the after. And the married couple walk openly, arm in arm, perfectly at ease with each other. And they speak to each other about the security they feel within their commitment to each other. Look at verses 5 to 7 of our final chapter. Who is this sweeping in from the desert, leaning on her lover? Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. Beautiful words about love, isn't it? The power of love, the, the heat of love, the, the, the pricelessness of love. In this we see the couple walking unashamedly in public together. And they no longer fear being affectionate in front of others because they're now married. And we see them simply with each other. They enjoy the serenity of marriage. That word serenity is not there, but it kind of seems like the right word, I reckon. How's the serenity? See, there's no longer that need to dream of anticipation or that dream of consummation because they're now married. And as they are married, there's... There's no raunchy love scene like in the woman's earlier dream. Notice that. They simply enjoy the pleasure of their commitment. And so in their warm embrace, they reminisce about the past, remembering how they fell in love under the apple tree. And they also reaffirm their commitment to each other. The woman asks the husband to again place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal in your arm. See, why would she desire such recommitment? It's because she knows what love is really like. And we saw these fears in an earlier dream. And now we see the reason why love is to be feared. In verses 6 and 7 we read that love is as strong as death, as unyielding as the grave, like a blazing fire, unquenchable. You see, fire is interesting, isn't it? It can warm our souls, but it can burn our flesh. And so it is with love. And so she wants to know again that it's worth surrendering her body to her husband, knowing his love will warm her, not burn her. But love is also seen as powerful and valuable. Not even death can weaken it, not even riches can buy it. The power of love needs to be harnessed carefully. 
And that's why God demands that we keep sex within the security of the marriage commitment. See, love makes a person highly vulnerable. Didn't we see that last week in particular? God wants you to be protected from many painful aspects of love by waiting until marriage. But the commitment of marriage is not only for security. See, within marriage, we also experience the peace of commitment. The peace. See, the discussion between the couple now prompts the friends to consider their younger sister. And in the light of the threat of love, they want to protect her because she's too young. Have a look at verses 8 and 9. We have a little sister, too young to have breasts. What will we do for our sister if someone asks to marry her? If she's a virgin like a wall, we will protect her with a silver tower. But if she's promiscuous like a swinging door, we'll block the door with a cedar bar. See, the young sister's too young for marriage, so they want to protect her from using love unwisely. They protect the young from the power of love. They want that door to remain closed, fortified, because they know the power of love and how it will harm her if she wakes love before it is time. But then the married woman speaks, verse 10. She says, I was a virgin like a wall. Now my breasts are like towers. When my love looks at me, he is delighted with what he sees. Uh, she, she is a, she's now fully mature. She was ready for love in every way. And she kept herself for her man. And the result in verse 10 is that when her lover looks at her, he is delighted with what he sees. Uh, more literally, it says that she has become, in his eyes, like one bringing peace. She brings him peace. Maybe the only Hebrew word that you've ever heard of is shalom. Uh, th that word literally means peace. And so here, that's the word that we have here. She has become, in his eyes, like one bringing shalom. It, it's not just peace from war. There's the idea of, of shalom in Hebrew thinking. is It's this rich word which, which sort of complete contentment, complete peace, complete satisfaction, complete wholeness. This is the shalom that she brings him. And so you ask the question, is commitment worth it? You bet it is. God says it's a yes. Because marriage is a wonderful thing that God has created for our benefit. It's to be enjoyed as he made it and to be enjoyed abundantly. But not with someone other than your spouse. Because with marriage, the joy is in ex exclusivity. The joy of marriage is its exclusivity. You know, in verses, eight, so verses 12 and 11, we read about Solomon. As I said in the first talk, this whole poem is probably not written by him, but attributed to him. A song that was in the Solomonic wisdom tradition. And here's why, I think. See, Solomon was a man who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He was the most rich and powerful man on earth. And yet, despite his wealth and despite how widespread he is in relationships... It doesn't impress this simple shepherd and this country girl 
They don't envy his wealth. They don't envy the number of people that he is connected to in this way. They reckon they've got it better than Solomon. And so in verse 11 and 12 it says, Solomon has a vineyard at Baal Haman, which he leases out to tenant farmers. Each of them pays a thousand pieces of silver for harvesting its fruit. But my vineyard is mine to give. And Solomon need not pay a thousand pieces of silver. But I will give 200 pieces to those who care for its vines. See, the more women that Solomon had in his vineyard, his harem, the less deeply personal and fulfilling his relationship is with them. See, the more, the messier. <laughs> in fact, he has to even hire keepers to look after them. But this lovely couple here, this, this simple shepherd and this country girl, have the complete devotion and commitment to each other. The joy of a monogamous, permanent relationship with full commitment. What a joy. I've mentioned many times throughout this series how indebted I am to theologian Barry Webb for his profound insights into the Song of Songs and in the many ways that his sermons and writings have influenced these four talks you've heard. Uh, in his terrific chapter in the book Five Festal Garments, uh, he says about this couple and the contentment that comes from their commitment. He says these words. He says, The song shows us a world in which a shepherd and a country girl can be as happy and fulfilled as the king upon his throne, perhaps even more so. Isn't that great? See, commitment is a wonderful thing. It brings security. It brings deep shalom, peace. It's what we deeply need. This was seen in the opening chapters of Genesis. After each day's creation, we saw it was good and it was good and it was good. But even in the Garden of Eden, there was something that was not good. Chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll find a helper suitable for him. And so God created the woman. See, Song of Songs shows us how good it is to be united in marriage. But as we rejoice in the beauty of marriage, it, we should be careful to realise that not all people will end up being married. And many people will not be married for their whole life. In other parts of the Bible, God actually shows that there are benefits in singleness. There are benefits in singleness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in the New Testament, uh, there are times when we read that singleness can be seen as preferable to being married. And so from verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 7, we read these words. Paul says to the church, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you to serve the Lord best 
with as few distractions as possible. See, in other words, being single has its advantages in enabling Christians to be dedicated to focus on serving the Lord with fewer distractions. So you don't need to be married to be a complete, fulfilled human. Take Jesus, for example. He was not married. He died a virgin. And yet he was the most perfect example of the most perfect human, complete in every way. And as we read this interesting section here from 1 Corinthians 7, I can sort of see why it is that some Christian traditions say that there's a benefit in clergy being celibate. But you see, it says not to place any restrictions on you. And I don't think that clergy celibacy is something that should be enforced. Some people will choose to be single, and others, however, may not have that choice. But I think that it's wise for us not to elevate singleness as a super spiritual option, that only the most super, the sp the most super spiritual people are the single people, because they haven't got down to getting married. See, the Song of Songs tells us that it's good to enjoy the unity of marriage. And to choose otherwise, as some will do, uh, it's an honourable sacrifice, though. But it is a sacrifice. It's a cost to the individual. I want to read to you another Barry Webb quote. Can't get enough of him. Have a listen to this. He says, Singleness remains a state of loneliness in which certain natural created desires are not met. There are compensations, of course, and important benefits, but particular needs remain unmet and the single person has to live with that fact and work through it. It's important to acknowledge this, otherwise there's a danger of moving into a kind of unreality and denial that are not helpful, either to single people themselves or those who minister to them. You see, if you desire marriage but still remain single then the message of the Song of Songs is still for you. Love is a powerful emotion. And if we are to obey God and do what is best for us, we've got to make sure that we trust him to supply our needs, even if you feel that your prayers are unanswered in this way or answered in a way that you did not want. If you are unmarried, you may feel tempted to find a marriage partner from someone who is not a Christian. But God's teaching is that Christians should marry Christians. Again, 1 Corinthians 7 is where we find important words on this subject, as well as in 1 John. And if you want to ask more about that, you could ask me a question and I could tell you more in question time next week. But we're running out of time tonight. But the point here, I think, is clear, that if you are not yet married and are a follower of Jesus then if you seek a marriage partner outside the body of believers, then you're acting in a way that is at very least unwise and more, really, more realistically disobedient to God. And it may even cost you your salvation. See, I know people who have, as Christians, have chosen to marry a non-Christian and have fallen away from their faith as a result. Sometimes the opposite happens too, which is great news. 
But God says we should remain faithful to him, trusting that he is right and good and has what is in your best interests in mind. Even if that goodness comes from patience and perseverance. And since dating ultimately leads to marriage, I think that this prohibition on marrying non-believers applies also to the person we go out with as well. If you go out with a non-Christian person, then you place yourself at similar risks. But in all of this, marriage, singleness, all of this, we've got to realise that, that marriage is not the ultimate reality in life. There is something that is even better. For the ultimate reality is union with Christ. The ultimate reality is union with Christ. The most important relationship, the most important commitment we can benefit from is the joy of knowing that God is committed to all who turn to him in faith. We see this commitment in Ephesians 5. Here Jesus is compared to the husband and God's people are compared to the bride. So if we are the bride, how does God the groom act? Well, he gives his life for us. That's how Jesus acts. We read in Ephesians 5, 25 to 26, For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How? He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. All of us can be part of the greatest marriage of all. See, God's people are the bride, Jesus is the groom, and he's given his life so that we can be made holy in his sight. So you might have had relationships that have been disobedient to God. You may now be in a relationship that is disobedient to God. You may now be behaving in a way that you know is disobedient to God. Christ loves you. He gave up his life for you so that you would be holy and clean. And if you confess your sins to God, he is faithful and just and he will purify you from all unrighteousness. Friends, this is the promise. This is the greatest thing we can know about marriage is how the groom, Christ, loves the bride, the church giving his life for us. And so this is the most important relationship you can ever enter into, the relationship between you and Jesus. It's the most important commitment that you can ever make. And it's the most wonderful marriage you can ever have. So if you're single or married, separated or divorced, you can still have a perfect marriage with Jesus. And if you feel that you're too sinful to stand before Jesus, then what does it say here? He gave his life for you to make you holy and clean. And this is the promise that God is saying tonight to you by his spirit in his word right now. Jesus can wash the most filthy sin clean. That is the promise we have. It's been certainly a, a journey over the last few weeks, hasn't it, as we've looked at the Song of Songs, talked about all sorts of things that you may not expect to have heard from a pulpit, things in the Bible you may not have realised were there, but you'll make a note for future reference. We've seen in this the beauty of love. We've seen the pain of love. And we've seen that 
the ultimate reality of love is in Christ. And the message is that love between a man and a woman is a beautiful thing and sex is a great thing as well. And that's, in fact, the way the Song of Song ends. We leave the couple together to enjoy that most wonderful fruit of union. The last two verses, here we go. Oh, my darling, lingering in the gardens, your companions are fortunate to hear your voice. Let me hear it too. Come away, my love. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. Isn't love grand? Let me pray. Lord, we come here tonight as people who are overwhelmed by this beautiful gift of love and sex that you have given your people. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would give us your spirit to strengthen us so that we might obey you and trust you, even as we are impatient at times for the love and sex that is promised that we should have only in marriage. For those of us who are not yet married or have uh, been widowed or divorced or in any way are not married, we pray, Father, for patience. We pray for holiness. And for all of us, Father, everyone in this room, we pray again for forgiveness, knowing that no matter how we sin, that the death of Christ, the, the groom who died for the bride, the church, is one that brings holiness and cleanliness, cleanliness from our sins. And we pray, Father, that we would know your forgiveness through the death of your Son in the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.